You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we work to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus and as we scatter to share it. We hope that you enjoy. The privileges of preaching is that you get to take the mask off for a bit. That's a wonderful thing. Well, thank you, Wade. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the responsibility of bringing the word and we come to this wonderful passage of Scripture, 1 John, chapter 1, and just a few verses in, in, in chapter 2. The, chapter, the first chapter of 1 John is a letter that is greatly loved, and that's for good reason. It really oozes compassion. It oozes love. It oozes so many of the promises that Christians hold dear. It's a wonderful passage, and I just warn you this morning that we don't have any hope of dealing with all the intricacies and the details of this passage. So what I want us to do, really, is to step back, take a look at what is John, by the Holy Spirit, saying? What is his intent? What does he want to bring across? What does he want us to see? What is the essence of this passage? And so, before we jump in, let's pray again. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that it holds. Thank you for the beauty, the splendor of Christ, the word made flesh, declared to us. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to see the beautiful things in your word this morning. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. We cannot help but see the parallel or the how the gospel of John and the letters, the epistles of John work together. John brings these thoughts and he brings them across in his letters and in, his, and in the gospel of, according to John. And he begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word, Jesus Christ, has always been with the Father. Eternal, without beginning, without end. And in his letter, this epistle, John now takes this theme further. And he begins by saying, That which was was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The same eternal word, John says, Jesus the Messiah, we have seen with our eyes. We did not imagine him. We did not hallucinate. We saw him clearly. We have looked upon him. In other words, we fixed our attention on him. We considered him. We contemplated him. We scrutinized him closely, carefully. Our hands have handled, John says. You remember the day when 
the Lord Jesus walked on the water to the disciples in the boat. They were terrified. He said to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And this is what John is saying. This is the same words used there. Our hands have handled. He was not just an apparition. He was just not a roving spirit. He was God-made flesh. We saw, we engaged, we held him. John is saying, we have verified that this Jesus is real. We have seen him in the flesh. We have felt him in the flesh. He was not a spirit, not an apparition, not an illusion. The eternal word became flesh. He added to his person a human nature, proven, verified, fact. But there's more. The word was made flesh and lived under God's law without any kind of fault. The word was put to death. He bore our sins. But according to God's plan, the grave could not keep him. And the word, Jesus, was the first one to raise, to, be right, to rise eternally from the dead. Permanently. And this takes us back to the passage that we've already heard in John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of, it, mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, such a gracious thing, isn't it? Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And so when John writes, we have seen him, we have looked on him, we have handled him, we have touched him, he means that they saw the risen Christ. They gazed on the risen Christ. They touched the Christ who had been risen, that had been raised from the dead. Proven. Verified. Fact. And so it is as an eyewitness of the resurrection that John writes to us. After that interaction with Thomas and the other disciples, we read this in John 20. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, we must not get the wrong idea that Jesus is not saying that faith is some kind of misty, cloudy idea. But he's talking about those who will believe the facts of the eyewitness accounts. Those that have seen, that have looked upon, that have handled the risen Jesus Christ, they have written their accounts. And we put our faith on fact, not some kind of airy-fairy idea in the cloud. 
John, by the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that if you believe the message of the good news of the Messiah, your faith is based on fact, on sure ground, on solid ground. No one can take it, take it from you. The risen Jesus Christ appeared to many, 500, Paul tells, tells us, at one time. Which court of law would not, would go against that? 500 eyewitnesses at one time. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, it is based on fact, not feeling. And now, in his letter, John writes to those who do believe. He calls those who do believe, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he lived for them, he died for them, he was raised for their justification. He says to them now, come closer, my dear children. I want you to listen up. I want you to come and I want you to, in effect, hammer in the pegs of your faith. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had a conversation or someone's written a letter or an email to you and after you've read it or you've finished the conversation, you, you think to yourself, well, what was all that all about? What did they actually say to me? I've experienced that and I'm sure you have too. But when John writes as... Wade told us earlier, he alluded to this, John writes with purpose. He writes intentionally. We don't have to guess what John is getting at. We don't have to search for the fine print, because John is right out there. In the gospel, as we've already read, John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In his letter, now in 1 John, John is no less purposeful. He wants to achieve something in his writing. And he expects that those who believe the message will be changed. There's an outcome that he's expecting. I want you to open your Bibles at 1 John. Chapter 1. I'm not the only one that's going to be working this morning. I want you to look at your text. I want you to run your eye down 1 John chapter 1 and slightly in the first couple of verses of chapter 2. And I want you to find those purposes that John is writing about. He's, he's telling us up front. This is what I want. When I'm telling you this message, these are going to be the outcomes. Can you see them? 1 John chapter 1, we see the first one in verse 3. That's which we have seen and we have proclaimed also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's a funny thing. Human beings strive for fellowship, don't they? We yearn to celebrate what we have in common, this commonness that we have. And that's why people come together around all different kinds of things. You get the strangest clubs that come together. You get knitting clubs, photography clubs, running clubs, stamp collecting clubs. I don't know why, but you probably do. We try to find this commonness in cultural activities, in political activities. 
Of course, fellowship is a word that we use commonly in church. We have fellowship meals. We have coffee after the service, eventually. And we call it a time of fellowship. Churches do many things to promote and build fellowship. They organize hikes and games evenings and sing songs and many other things. These things are all good and helpful, but if we hear what John is saying, we see that fellowship is something that we cannot produce. A group of people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he lived and died and was raised for them, and that by him we have life, such a group of people cannot be stopped in sharing what they have in common. It's not something we can produce. It's not something we can conjure up. But if you believe John's message, you cannot help but have in common with others who believe the same message. The next thing that John is bringing to us, the next purpose of his, of his writing is found in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, depending on your translation and in your Bible, you might see that might be a footnote there. That Some translations in the original texts that we have sometimes differ. It could be our joy may be complete or your joy may be complete. But either way, again, joy is something that we yearn for. And we try to find it in many different ways and in many different forms of activities. But if we hear what John says, it is something that comes when you embrace the message that he is bringing. Deep-seated, complete joy in all circumstances. Can you see the next reason for John's writing in the text? In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, in fact, we find two reasons. They kind of together, but they're slightly different. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. See the purpose? That you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for all the sins of the whole world. Which Christian does not wish for their sinfulness to magically disappear? Are you tired of hurting the ones you love with words and your actions? Are you tired of fighting the same sin that returns again and again and again? Are you tired of doing the things you know you should, should not do? Are you tired of not doing the things you know you should be doing? Well, John is writing so that you will not sin. And in that statement, there is hope. There is something in his message that will give us power over sin. And yet at the same time, we know that until our bodies have been glorified, we will sin. And even in that, there is hope. But let's get to the message. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. We've got the purposes. John is writing. What are the purposes so far? 
that we will have fellowship. It'll produce fellowship. It'll produce joy. It'll produce victory over sin, and it'll produce hope where there is sin. But this is the message, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The message begins where all messages should begin with God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in the Greek, it's a very strong statement. No, not one speck of darkness can be found in God. In other words, in God, there is no ignorance, no error, no untruthfulness, no sin, no death, nothing like that. This takes us back to John's gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only grace and truth, no darkness. And of course, John, when he experienced Jesus Christ, he experienced this light in the flesh. John heard this from Jesus in his words. He saw it lived out by Jesus in his actions. John was with Jesus in the shoving crowds. John sat with Jesus when he was provoked by the self-centeredness of the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John was with Jesus when he lay exhausted in the boat. John was there on the mountain when the radiant splendor, when Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. At the Passover meal before before Jesus' death, John was right there next to Jesus, reclining on him. John stood at the foot of the cross when he heard those insults thrown at Jesus. And he heard that trembling voice from the cross as Jesus gave his mother, Mary, into the care of his beloved disciple, John. John was one of the closest disciples to Jesus, and he observed Jesus in every situation and experienced that Jesus, God in the flesh, had no darkness whatsoever. God is light, and it is impossible to have any darkness in his presence. Every child knows that light and darkness cannot mix, right? Children love to play with torches. I saw Kian just the other night, running around with a torch. Children love to do it. And they know by experience that if there's a dark corner and you shine a light into the dark corner, what happens? The darkness disappears. It cannot coincide. It cannot live with light. Where there is light, there is no darkness. Where there is darkness, there is no light. And because of this, John says, if you say... Look at your text. If you say you have an intimate relationship with God, and yet in your thoughts, words, and actions, and intentions, if your loves, in your loves, and if you're living a pattern, and your lifestyle is filled with those things that God hates, the truth is not in you. You cannot be a child of God if you live continually in a pattern according to the things that God hates. 
In fact, John says, you are a liar. That's a bit of a slap in the face, isn't it? That's not good news, is it? That leaves us pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Well, no, because John goes on in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It is possible, John says, to walk in the light. Back to John's gospel in chapter 8. John writes, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am, yes, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the first step is believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one from God. Believing that he is the light. Believing that you are darkness and that you need the light. But John is talking to those who have already followed Christ by grace here in this epistle. So what exactly does he mean, walk in the light? Well, again, we don't need to guess. Because as Scripture does, Scripture interprets Scripture. And if we go back to John's writing in John chapter 3, he makes it quite plain for us. John chapter 3 verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Come to the light. And John is inviting us, in a sense, to come into the light. What does he mean? Well, come to the light to be exposed. If you want to see something clearly, what do you do? Well, you turn the light on or you take it to the window. You want to see, you want more light on the matter, is the expression, right? Come to the light, John says. Two aspects. To be exposed, but come to the light so that if there is anything good, it'll be seen as from God, not from you. If you understand who Jesus is, if you understand that Jesus, what Jesus has done, you willingly step into the searchlight of God's perfect, pure, radiant beauty. You know what that light does? Is it a comfortable thing? No, because that light penetrates. It burns. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. No one likes their sin to be exposed. Do you? No one does. But you know what? As every Christian knows, that searchlight purges and cleanses. It cleans. As John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And John elaborates. He goes on to say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So first of all, Christian, admit you sin. Because if you say that you have not sinned, that you do not sin, you lie. 
That's one characteristic of being a follower of Christ, that you know your own sinfulness. Secondly, confess your sin. What does it mean to confess? In the Greek, it's made up of two words, really. Homo logeo. means really to say the same thing. And this is important. It means that you state your sin to God as God would say it. Without excuses, without justifying it, without minimizing your guilt, like the prodigal son who merely returns to the father and says, Father, I have sinned against you. And this is how I have sinned against you. And you plainly use the same words that God would. Then comes the amazing promise. The most beautiful promise. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A little while back, one of the heads of one of the biggest psychiatric institutions in the UK, he made a statement, which is something like this. I would release half my patients if I could assure them of forgiveness. You know what he's saying? He's saying that many of the so-called disorders, many of the problems that people have, psychiatric problems in in that context, were as a result of of not being forgiveness, of the guilt that they're carrying around. Are you carrying guilt? God has given us a conscience. And it bothers us. But this beautiful promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He will not turn away. He will not not do what he's saying. He will always do what he says. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a promise. If you say your sin as God would say it to God. Amazing thing happens. Our fellowship with our Father is then restored. Fellowship. Joy. There's another amazing, can I call it even a side effect almost, that it's like taking off your muddy clothes and putting on a sparkling white suit. When you have your muddy clothes on, you don't mind digging in the garden, changing a tire, cleaning the gutters, right? But put on your sparkling white suit. You're not so inclined to do those things. And this is the amazing thing, that as the Christian walks in this way of confessing sin and receiving that promise of forgiveness, guess what happens? You're less inclined to put on the dirty clothes once again. And John says, I'm writing this to you that you would not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Living the good news of Jesus, living the message of John, in some senses prevents sin. 
But until your body is glorified, Christian, you will sin. So know this. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The word that John uses there is parakletos, the same word that he uses for the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who walks with us, who comes alongside. But we have one in heaven, a man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who pleads on our behalf in the Father's presence. When Satan tempts me to despair, we sang it, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How so? 1 John 2 verse 2. Here's the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but for all the sins of the whole world. We are all lawbreakers. We are all guilty before God, and God is justly angry. Romans chapter 1. And he must, if he is just, act against sin. But Jesus' death was a sacrifice that satisfies the anger of God. God poured his anger out on his only son. Isaiah tells us it pleased him to bruise him, to crush his only son. It is sufficient for the whole world, but is effective for those who believe. Those who accept the message of John. Those who believe the message, the good news message, that sacrifice, that propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice, the one that satisfies the anger of God, becomes effective for you when you believe. Christian, this is your hope. Your hope is grounded in truth, in fact. This is our big idea for, the, for today. A firmly grounded faith leads to hope for supernatural change. Change that we could not bring about. We cannot force ourselves to have fellowship. We cannot force ourselves to have joy. We cannot help ourselves but continue to sin. We cannot help but be buckled over because of our sin and the guilt that it brings. But because, Christian, you have a faith that is grounded in the fact of the risen Jesus Christ, we have fellowship. We have joy. We have hope that sin can be overcome. And we have hope because the guilt that we bear, actually was born by him. Deep-seated, supernatural fellowship with other children of God. Complete joy, victory over sin, and assurance of, of forgiveness. A firmly grounded faith leads to hope for supernatural How we thank you, Father, that you have done all things. Your work is complete in Jesus Christ. We who are hopeless now have hope. We who 
had nothing but our own corruption, now can have joy in life. And so, Father, we praise you. We praise your wisdom, your love. Your justice was satisfied by crushing your own sin that we may live. Blessed be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Wade. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.